0: basically his his communication style and the other dogs here communication style of like you know oh let's let's like they play rough they they hang rough they correct each other really rough they're not hurting each other physically but mentally he was basically being run into the ground.
1: Welcome to part one of this episode of the Canning Plus 7 podcast. Natalie Thurman was my guest on this episode of the Canning Plus 7 podcast. On part one of this episode, we discussed who is Natalie Thurman. We also talked about how she came to Montana, what made her start breeding and training livestock guardian dogs. Natalie also has a school that teaches people how to train their livestock guardian dogs after the breeder gets them. The training really begins after Natalie has them for 12 weeks. We also mentioned that sometimes a puppy may not be right for its owner or the other dogs in the pack. In fact, this happened to Natalie, and she had to give up one of her puppies after six months because it was just not right for Natalie, the adult dogs, or her family. Natalie also has a website called com. That's A P E X A N A T O -L 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 L ins.com. That's a p e x a n a t o l i n s.com. If you want to get a hold of me to suggest a guest on this podcast or to leave a good old-fashioned comment, please do so. My email address is Canning plus seven at protonmail.com. That's c a n n i n g p l u s the number seven at protonmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at Canning plus seven. That's C A N N I N G, the plus sign, and then the number seven. I think you will enjoy this episode of the Canning Plus Seven podcast. Thank you very much for listening. It is Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. Welcome to the Canning Plus Seven podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. Sorry we weren't here last week. Uh, The guest who I had on canceled on me, and so we're going to move him to next week. In the meantime, Natalie Thurman is my guest. Hi, Natalie. How are you?
0: Great, Kevin. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes. Now, let me just give you a bit of an introduction here because I have never met you in person in my entire life. Um, Although that's not (laughs) unusual for most guests that I have on, but I actually met you on an app called Clubhouse and I found you very intriguing. Thank you. Now, uh, just (laughs) so you know, uh, people know that you are from Texas. Where from Texas are you?
0: Oh, I know I'm actually I'm originally from California. But Uh-oh. I live in Louisiana.
1: You're not gonna liberalize this state, are you?
0: Uh no, I think I think I own enough guns to rule that out as a possibility.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So where from California <laughs> are you though?
0: Uh I'm from Orange County originally, which is like the bougie part between LA and San Diego.
1: Actually, back in the day, if I'm not mistaken, uh Orange County was if not the most, one of the most conservative counties in California, wasn't it? It is. Yeah, is it still, it is or day. has it gone? Mm-hmm. Huh. And yeah. Now i I do know Redding, California, clear up north over by Oregon, is pretty conservative. Also, I'm not sure who's more conservative.
0: I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't there for the conservative Olympics. So. Now you
1: refer. you refer me to a blog? Um, give me that blog address. I don't have it in front of me.
0: Oh yeah. Um, Louise, uh, Liebenberg's blog, uh, it's called predator friendly ranching. It's a uh, predator friendly ranching.blogspot.com. If yes. I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah. That's yeah.
0: Right.
1: yeah. And so in we're going to be, gonna be le- getting a lot of information off of that. But first Natalie, let's talk about you. Uh, how did you get into homesteading? Oh, by the way, before we get into this, uh, Natalie is a trainer of dogs who guide livestock, uh, just so everybody knows, but, ha- and, uh, you're also a diehard homesteader in other ways, correct?
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, we're pretty selective on, on how we homestead. Um, I don't make everything that goes into my mouth or grow it. Um, but we, we do, follow the like you know the basic principles of homesteading which is like you know be self-sufficient and be prepared
1: (laughs) how did you get into homesteading and how did you end up in montana because didn't you live in texas for a while as a nurse
0: no uh i was in arizona so um basically california um is an interesting state with interesting ideas and one of their things they have going on or at least Uh, over a decade ago, not sure about current status, uh, was that if you changed your major whilst in college that you would have to basically build up registration priority to get in-demand classes, which means if you say change from an animal science pre-veterinary major like I did to a pre-nursing major trying to get prerequisites to get your RN degree, uh, you could wait three years at a community college Taking random classes to build up "quote unquote" registration priority to get the class, the like five classes you needed to actually apply for nursing school. Um, so that was not an efficient model for me. I got three of the five done, but I still had to get my anatomy and physiology, and I couldn't get them in California, so I went and paid out of state tuition in Arizona to get those done. So, and that is where okay, so husband. if I <laughs>
1: was majoring in communications. In California, it doesn't matter where, and I assume this is both at a university and a community college, in the middle of my major, I decided to change to psychology. I'd have to take three to five classes before I actually registered, or, or how no, does that work? No, not if
0: you stay at the same institution, um, but what I did is I did not want to pay university California university rates for um, prerequisites. That i could Mm -hmm. easily get for you know much cheaper at a community college and at the time none of my advisors advised me of the reality of the registration process at community colleges so while they are cheaper um they will cost you time so um yeah it just it worked out i met him i met him online (laughs) which is like 10 years ago 12 years ago now wow um that was very different than like it is now now it's very efficient um back then it was kind of a a new weird thing to date online so that's how we met we met in person um he tolerated me and my dogs and he already had dogs so that was a good thing and then um
1: was i assume he was in arizona at the time
0: mm -hmm. yeah he's from he's from the phoenix area so we uh and he actually already had the property up here in month which he mentioned like offhand in conversation at some point and I was like wait you have a, a little property in Montana like could we go there could I have goats and he was like yeah I guess and I was like sold so um, oh wow that's 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 what sold that got me up here um yeah and I mean he my husband is definitely more the prepper than I am um he that that, I think that just like happens when you go to a war zone Um, you come back and you're like things could go really south really quickly I need to have years and years of food stockpiled just in case so that is like my husband like like you know food and other things um that are worth more than precious metals at this point in time uh so yeah he he was the motivating factor behind that I was more of the Well, if I have milk goats, he'll drink the milk. And then I have an excuse to have livestock. And then um, we moved here. And the day we moved in, I was like, well, honey, I just I need a dog to live outside with the goats so that the bears and the wolves don't eat them. And, um, you know, I I, famous last words. I was like, we just need one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, my poor husband. Um, So looking outside, I see four right now. Um, so that didn't work out the way I maybe, uh, sold it, but it's, it's definitely worked out. He does actually like the dogs, but they are definitely my thing. Um, and yeah, we just, we moved to Montana. We have been here since 2010. So 11 years, just over 11 years now. So, um, we're
1: here,
0: we're here to stay. We're not like, we don't, you know, just come up for the pretty summers and then just snowbird away. We, we are here. And- Let me ask
1: you though, cause you lived in California and Arizona or were the brutal winters up here hard to get used to?
0: Um, yes, but not as hard as the hot summers of Arizona were hard to get used to. Um, like when it's 120 degrees outside, then you have to go from air conditioning to 120 to like your car and eventually it gets cool again. And then you get out of your air conditioned car and go into 120 and then go into another air conditioned space. I think that's harder on a body than just bundling up and making it work. You, you can always add a layer of clothing. As long as you have enough clothing to add, you can only get so naked you know, that's socially acceptable in public. So yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that heat is actually worse than cold. Um, at least for me, so I, I don't mind the winters. Um, we, that is also to say we have machinery that we use to move the snow. So if I was out there oh, shoveling yeah. a 400 foot driveway by hand, I bet you, I would feel different about winter in Montana.
1: Oh, so, oh Yeah.
0: So if I didn't have a tractor to (laughs) to push snow around, I'm sure I would uh, be less a fan, but as it is, I like it.
1: (laughs) So you got interested in training dogs because you needed a job or some way to keep the wolves away from your goats. And that's how you got into training dogs.
0: dogs. Um, I grew up with, with healers and lab mixes and uh, boxers. Mm -hmm. And then I ran corgis through college because I went to an ag school. So um, I had little herding dogs that were adorable and hilarious and also did work on occasion. So that was nice. But um, no, I, I decided that I, I understood where I was moving to uh, is one of the most popularly written about, like there's a book, I think, or at least a couple studies about my particular valley that I live in about mm-hmm. our wolf pack. So I knew um, full well after a diligent Google search and some library books that I was moving to a hefty, hefty wolf populated area and everywhere in Montana is a bear populated area. Um, turns out the actual thing that you want to worry about here is cougars, but um, the the feline kind, not the elderly lady type. But um, it is it is a different way of living when you consider like when you go outside or when you send your kids outside, like you're like, oh, what's out there? like do i know <laughs> so um, oh go ahead oh i just uh, you know it's it's a different you know no one down in phoenix proper is setting their kids outside to play in the winter when it's cool outside and like worrying about them getting picked off by a cougar like that's not oh, that's, yeah. that that doesn't even enter their brain i don't so know what's here, worse getting different.
1: kicked by a cougar or falling down like toy soldiers if you remember that song by Martika.
0: I I don't remember that song.
1: Oh, okay. Anyway. I was
0: born in nineteen eighty-eight, if that helps our context. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, that came out in eighty-nine. It goes uh, step by step, heart to heart, something, something we all fall down like toy soldiers. Very depressing song, but it has a pretty interesting message behind it. It was actually my theme song after I suffered a bad breakup back in two thousand uh two thousand two. Oh, shoot. Uh, now, yes, it does talk about a drug addiction, but I kind of interpret it as I was the one that was falling down like a toy soldier. Anyway, uh, so I don't know what do you think is worse, being uh, <laughs> kicked by a cougar or falling down, uh, your kid being kicked by a cougar or falling down like a toy soldier?
0: Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the cougar would be okay. worse. They'll, they'll crush a skull. Okay. So, um, yeah, they're a little more. They're a little more serious. Although, if the soldier is a version of drug use, I'm not sure that I would prefer drug use. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the lyrics. So.
1: <laughs> anyway, really so you went to, so you read about these uh, wolves in Montana, and you didn't want your kids to be beaten up by cougars. So I assume that's. Uh, go ahead and take well, it from there.
0: Well, yeah. So there's, I mean, there's also wild ungulates galore here right we've got we've got deer we've got elk we've got moose um there's plenty of things for the wildlife to eat like the wild predators to eat other wildlife um the issue is that when you as a human a move to a populated area of predators and then b you throw snacks outside in a fence that they can't get out of Um, You're serving them up like that. That's on you as a human. When you contain livestock, especially in smaller acreage pens, um, you're just putting a snack out there for you're making opportunity for those predators. So that's not what I wanted to do when I moved here. I wanted to make sure that I was not drawing predators. Um, you know, and, and that's not just livestock. I mean, they say, um, you know, a a dirty barbecue girl will draw a bear. Even in the best of times, like in the middle of summer, um, your trash, if you don't like clean your trash out before dumping it in your barrels, your trash can be a draw for predators. Livestock, chickens, goats, even like smaller cows, they're definitely a draw for predators because just like us, they're opportunistic. So if they see an easy meal or an easy option, they're going to take that route rather than go chase down a deer for two miles and actually yeah. finally get it. Um, so I don't blame them for that. That's just nature. That's, that's not their fault. Everybody has to eat. Yeah. <laughs> um, my job when I moved here with my very expensive registered dairy goat herd was to make sure that they weren't on the menu and the way that I chose to do that. And there are many methods, but the way I chose was livestock guardian dogs. Um, basically, livestock guardian dog's job is to establish a predator um territory on your land so they they pee on everything they scent mark, they bark um they communicate clearly in a language it means that the other local fauna can understand i'm here and if you come here it's going to be trouble for you like i'm going to make it a bad day it's not worth it go somewhere else um in no uncertain terms (laughs) so um, when you have one dog or one puppy that you're raising up your first one, that's not exactly a, a big deterrent for a black bear, much less a cougar or a couple wolves. Um, when you build up a pack of them, they function like a pack of wolves that just instead of eating your sheep, they actually possess and control the territory around your sheep. Um, and they know that they're not supposed to touch the sheep. So, um, basically their, their life is to resource guard your livestock and, um, whatever you see as important, they make sure nothing eats it, which is good. And they've been doing that for thousands of years. It's a a tested method. Yeah. About 2000
1: years as to my understanding, approximately.
0: Yeah. It's been, it's been a long time. So, um, they know what they're doing. They do need some training, just like every other working animal on the planet. It's not like you go out in the pasture and pick out a draft colt and you're like, and now you're going to pull my cart for me with no training, no anything. Um, no one does that. You don't train your, you don't set your German shepherd out to go bite people randomly without any training. Um, a lot a lot of people do make the mistake of just throwing livestock guardian puppies out with a herd of sheep and being like, oh, it's instinct. He knows the job. That's, that's not how we do that. But um, with direction and some, you know, instruction from the human and or older dogs that you have, they can be great, great assets and they can work very effectively while you sleep, which is my like real selling point for them. Because when I first moved here, I did not
1: Sleep. <laughs> so walk my me through what it okay so from the time you get a puppy to the time it's trained because I know according to what I've read it takes about eight to 12 weeks to train a puppy assuming of course that the puppy gets along with other dogs we'll talk about that later but it's just assuming that walk me through the process of a getting the puppy introducing it to everybody or all the dogs on your ranch and then training it. Walk me through that whole process.
0: Sure. I, I think you mean like it leaves the breeder um, yes. at 12 weeks old. So it's not trained when it comes from the breeder. Although some of them will tell you it is they're lying. Don't believe it. Um, okay. So when you have a puppy, you know, eight weeks is the bare minimum that any mammal should leave its mother, um, like kittens, puppies, hamsters, Anything that has like, you know, drank milk should not be leaving its mom before eight weeks of age. Uh, It's actually illegal in many states to place a puppy before it's eight weeks of age. Um, With the working dogs, what we have found is if you do not have established working dogs doing the exact same job, the exact right way that you'd like them to do it, that uh, waiting a little longer is of a benefit. So you can leave that puppy with mom, dad. rest of the working dogs at the breeder's house for 12 weeks is really nice um because that puppy's getting more of a foundation they're working on their bite inhibition more where they learn not to draw blood on friendlies and um you're also getting a dog who's been around more livestock the exception is if you own say alpacas and the breeder only has like goats um alpacas do weird things. They smell weird. They spit. they tromp really strangely. And they'll try to like trample a puppy if they've, they're not been around dogs before. So, um, bringing in a puppy to livestock that has never been around a livestock guardian dog and thinks that all dogs are predators and a threat is a process. Uh, you have to train your livestock and your dog. So, um,
1: so when you say that uh, it's perfectly okay to let leave the breeder at its house for 12 weeks and it makes it nice, I assume that some, you, certain times of the day you have to bring the breeder out to the new puppies or the new dogs, and then what? You leave them there for an hour or two, bring them back home, let them, I guess, think, for lack of a better word, about the day, and then go back out and do the same routine for the next 12 weeks?
0: um do you mean like taking the puppy back and forth to yes. your
1: house yeah no
0: so that's a biohazard um issue so like on farms you have biosecurity measures where so you're not transferring animals off and back and off and back um they can tr- they can bring back parvo they can bring back all kinds of yummy diseases that you do not want. oh okay um, when a puppy leaves the breeder it leaves the breeder and it goes to your house if you ever decide that you can no longer have the puppy um the breeder can take them back for sure if they're a decent breeder they will take them back rather than letting you like sell them for 50 dollars on craigslist or give them to a shelter um but they're going to be quarantined away from the other dogs and away from the livestock for at least 30 days to make sure they don't start sneezing or coughing or doing anything creative um so, no, with live animals, you can't just, like, take them to go train them with your animals for an hour and put them back. That Once you have a puppy, you have a puppy. Oh, okay, um, so
1: I thought you said something about it's okay to take it back to the breeder's house during that 12-week period or something like that.
0: No, they just don't leave the breeder's house in that 12-week period. They go with the breeder's livestock and the breeder's dogs. Oh, okay. Not yours. Yeah. So, um like when I place a puppy and they go home, they're they're home now at their new house. They, they don't just keep coming back and forth. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And that's any dog. Okay. A it would very much confuse the puppy to go see their mom and then go to a new place and then go back and see their mom and go to a new place. They're gonna smell weird. They're gonna smell like all oh, your dogs, not my dogs. My dogs won't enjoy that. Um, there's a lot of reasons that doesn't work. So while it might seem nice in theory, it's not. Uh, something that we practice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. So back to the twelve week thing. Sorry, there's a bit of misconception. Back to the twelve week thing. Um, yeah. So once yeah. you
0: have your puppy at twelve weeks from your breeder and you bring it home, proper introductions are important. Um, if you have herding dogs or you have pet dogs, they're not really going to be with the puppy. The puppy's going to be out in the barn in a puppy pen. If it's if you don't have any adults that are already working livestock guardian dogs um they can see your pet dogs through the fence they can you know do that but really that puppy is not there for your dogs to be friends with that's not why they're there so um they're there to bond with the livestock not you not your dogs. um they will bond to you because humans are infinitely more fascinating to dogs than sheep um so that's just going to happen anyway as long as you go out there and feed them twice a day basically and take them around on a leash with you with chores um, while you feed everybody else, but you, you do not need to run the puppy up to the house, have the puppy inside your house to make sure that they like you. That's, that's another, um, interesting things that humans have decided to do in America. Um, okay. you're confusing the dog. You're saying like, hi, I brought you here to live in the barn and sleep with the sheep, but I'm going to have you sleep in my bed for the first couple nights, just so I know you are Okay was being away from your mom. So you're substituting yourself for the mom and you're going to set that puppy up for not just one adjustment period, but two, maybe three adjustment periods if you screw it up spectacularly, like a lot of people tend to do. So um, you want the rules and the expectations to be clear for that puppy from day one that they come to your property, which Mm -hmm. should be, you don't put mouths on my livestock, you watch them, you don't touch them, and you tell me when something is amiss. That's that's their expectations. Um and they they can come indoors. That's not to say like they should ever go inside a building. If you ever want them to be able to go to a vet to get a rabies vaccine or get stitched up uh after an accident or a work injury, you definitely want them to be able to walk through a functioning door mm-hmm. into your vet's office, and you want them to know how to load up into a truck. That is just not something you need to do on day one. And you don't need to have them sleeping in your bed. Um, I crate train all my dogs just because of containment and evacuation, fires, natural disasters can happen. Um, all my dogs know how to load up into the stock trailer. All my dogs know how to sit quietly in a crate. These are just basic things. They also know what sit means. That doesn't mean that they're pet dogs.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, they, are, they are functioning working animals and they prefer to work. They would they would much rather be working outside than sitting in a crate safe and sound in the house. So I would imagine so,
1: they're working twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Correct? I mean, obviously they do sleep. Yeah, and- so
0: they sleep with an eye open. Um, they also like high ground, so they'll sleep up on a on a hill or um, you know up high where they can see where all the animals are, and they'll just kind of keep an eye open as they nap through the day. And then they what they really do is they work at night. Cause that's when the predators are up working. <laughs> so, okay. So they could um,
1: actually, if they wanted to sleep during the day with the night, do they ever do that? Do they ever sleep during the day and get up at night and watch from about, let's say eight o'clock to 5. AM or how does that work? Do you think?
0: Yeah. Most of them do. I mean, they're never off duty when they're outside, they're always watching, but they'll, they'll definitely doze off during the day and they're more active at night. Um, a lot of people, like, I mean, if you drive by any field with a bunch of sheep with the big, white, fluffy, like great Pyrenees dogs, um, you might see them up if the flock's moving, but if the flock's pretty stagnant. You'll see the dog sleeping up on a hill if they can find one. So um, they definitely have to sleep. They, it makes them look very lazy to onlookers because they're like, oh, that dog just does nothing unless you get too close to that fence, in which case that dog will show you exactly what it can do. Um, but, you know, they they conserve energy. They're the sprinters of the dog world. If there's nothing going on, there's no reason for them to do anything. They're going to conserve that energy until the wolf comes to later tonight. Basically. So, so what do
1: you do during that 12 weeks though, when you train them, um, you the obviously breeder. what's it? Yeah. The,
0: so the breeder is training them a like schedule. Um, we're working bite inhibition. I mean, this is what I do. I, Cannot speak to other breeders. Lots of other breeders just throw them out in the field and call it a day. Um, I work bite inhibition. My puppies go through a curriculum process to make sure that they're not going to be gun shy. To make sure that they are basically um, mentally prepared for what you know the world can throw at them. Um, you know textures on their paws. I do early neurological stimulation which is um, something that Dr. Carmen Bataglia basically created for um, working line German Shepherd dogs. But basically what it is, is it um, from the time the puppy is like three days old for for that two weeks thereafter, you are stressing the puppy on purpose before their eyes are even open. Um, And what you're doing is you are um, essentially training their brain stress recovery, stress recovery, stress recovery. So that that dog is resilient when something goes wrong and that that dog can recover from a stressful event and still go back and work. Um, A lot of puppies that are just whelped in a barn and never touched by humans, they get very stressed out when um, a farmer has to go get them to pull porcupine quills out of their mouth or their snout um, or their foot. Um, if they're not used to being stressed and recovering quickly, that can affect their quality of life and their working career for the rest of their life. Um, so while it it seems weird to put puppies on a, a cold pack for 30 seconds, it's really like three seconds, but it feels like much longer when you're doing it to a puppy. Um, it just, it stresses their brain. It drops their core body temperature. It triggers a response of, you know, epinephrine in their bodies. But then immediately you pull them up and they recover. Um, and it, it just trains their bodies to be resilient. Basically. So is it like a
1: cold ice pack that you put on the puppy then?
0: Um, yeah. Or like a cold washcloth. Like you can get a, a washcloth wet and um, like throw it in the freezer for a few minutes. It's not like you're like freezing them. You're not giving them frostbite or anything like that. Um, you, can, you can Google search it. It's just called early neurological stimulation. It basically just tells their brain like stress happens. How are you going to deal with it? And, um, it trains them to be, you know, tougher, (laughs) um, that, and then, um, I, so I do that. I do the Peppy curriculum to basically teach them like, you know, the world is a safe place generally. And also when something unexpected happens, like it's okay, you can work through it and you can solve problems, um, rather than, you know, getting frustrated, throwing fits, um, you know, the dogs who just sit down and bark when they would have to like walk two feet to the right to go around a barrier to get the treat. They just can't figure that out. My puppies can. <laughs> um, and it takes one try. So um, just teaching them how to like, you know, kind of be their own, be their own boss and, and run their own stuff um, is really important. And then I also do uh, puppy evaluations for temperament and work aptitude, which basically means that my puppies, I know what they want to be when they grow up when they're seven to eight weeks old. And Mm -hmm. it's my job as a breeder to then take what that puppy wants to do and be and match that to the appropriate home. And if I don't have an appropriate home on my wait list, I wait. I don't just throw that puppy to the first person with cash. Um, Like that is my responsibility. And that is something that is rarer and rarer to find in a breeder these days, um, especially with, you know, just the way the world's going. So um, like that is also part of what happens in their first 12 weeks. After their evals, I know where they're going. I will hold them unless they're going to a family guardian position. And I would rather they bond with that family um, rather than my livestock. Then um, they can go home earlier. But if I'm holding them the full 12 weeks, which is standard for my working puppies, um, we're doing controlled stock exposure. We're exposing them to my really gentle livestock first. I'm showing them that chickens are friends, not food i'm uh showing them that you know it's okay to you know share a bowl with your sister it's not okay to share a bowl with a pig um we we learn boundaries they learn you know what isn't isn't acceptable behavior the other dogs help me train that in um basically we we just teach them how to do what they need to do and what they need to know before they go into their new barn situation with new sheep and you know goats or whatever so um yeah, I'm, I'm basically just doing my part to set them up for success through the rest of their life in that extra four weeks that I hold them from eight to 12 weeks. Um, and then really like, you know, I, not everyone does that with their puppies. That doesn't mean that they're bad puppies or you shouldn't get a puppy from them. Um, it just means that you're going to have more work when you get that puppy home. So you, as a person who potentially would buy a livestock guardian dog puppy. Um, it's really important to have your priorities. Like if you say like, oh yeah, we're getting an LGD to protect the goats and you have two goats and you have five human children. What's what's replaceable? Is your goat replaceable or is your child replaceable? Like it's not the child. So if you know darn well, you have grizzly bears walking through your property and you just moved to your you know bug out place because COVID is crazy. Or do you really want that dog to live with those two goats and keep those goats safe? Or would you rather the dog... Keep an eye on your kids 24 seven when you're at work or you're out, you know, gathering firewood. So, um, you know, understanding what your situation is and what your family actually needs versus what you read in a book that you need is really important. And that's my actual business. I don't, I'm not just like a dog trainer. I actually train people how to train their dogs. (laughs) So I I have an online school where I teach people how to select, how to know if they even need an LGD, which is just livestock guardian dog without so many syllables, Um, how to select one, whether you want to get it from a rescue, from a breeder, from, you know, wherever, how to know that it's really what they say it is, how to, when and how to bring them home, what you need set up before they get home, what to set up after, supplies you need, how to establish like with a family meeting, what the rules are for that puppy and understanding and explaining consequences of not holding the line to your children and or spouse. Um, stuff like that, to just really set people up for success with these dogs, because they are different. They're not Labradors. They're not German Shepherds. They're not guard dogs. They're not retrievers. They're, you know, they are their own thing. And livestock guardian dogs think for themselves. But when they're puppies, you have to show them how you want them to think for themselves. You don't just turn them out loose and hope it all works out. So that that's what I do for people is I help them, you know, navigate this very different dog breed type and how they can actually use it to work for them, not frustrate them, ruin their marriage, that kind of stuff.
1: So it sounds like you train the puppies, but somebody probably comes to you and says, I want a puppy. I want a livestock dog that guards my sheeps and goats. Can you train it? And then you select a breed, I guess. Then you breed that dog to guide someone's livestock. Then I would go pick it up. Correct. I guess you've done it that way, or you've just, uh, bought some breeds randomly and advertised it. How does all that work?
0: Oh yeah, no, it's not random. So, um, only livestock guardian dog breeds should do the job because they have the coat, the size, the temperament, uh, Mm -hmm. to actually want to do this job. So it's not random at all. Um, I, I have run crossbreds. I have run Sharplaninots, which are another uh, more rare livestock guardian dog breed, and, uh, which is what Louise has up in Canada. And now I, I am shifting to just AKC uh, Anatolian Shepherds because they are more traceable and they have more health data behind them. And um, I can work more, more lines the way I want to, whereas I was basically swimming upstream almost alone with the crosses and with the, the chars, So, um, it's, it's not random at all. It's actually very planned out. I do, I like, yeah, I start the puppies. I call them started. I don't call them trained. Um, these dogs, they have a slow burn for growth and they have a slow burn for brain maturity. So you're looking at an 18 month to two year window on average for these dogs to not only come into their own, they'll look like an adult-sized animal by the time they're eight months old. That doesn't mean their brain is an adult. That's like a, you know, a 15-year-old boy. Yes, he looks big and adultish, but uh, in the brain, he is definitely not an adult yet, um, and should not be trusted with the Lamborghini to just go, you know, do whatever he wants. So um, that's the same with these dogs. You don't want to turn them out and give them enough rope to hang themselves. You want to monitor them, encourage good behaviors, redirect the less good behaviors. And, um, you know, you have to work with them. The breeder is not going to train your dog for you unless you are buying a trained adult, in which case you should have, I don't know, four to six grand set aside for a trained working dog, just like any other trained working dog that you would buy. So, um, it's much more cost effective to do it yourself, but, uh, if you need support, then, I, I do that also, but, but it sounds like DIY. you tra-
1: you breed the dogs for about 12 weeks and then you sell them to whoever wants one. Obviously you have a conversation. What is it you want your dog to do? Or, and you say, I have the right breed. I've been breeding this for 12 weeks and you sell it to the person. Correct.
0: Um, I mean, I've been breeding for over a decade, so, um, no, the puppies that I have are usually reserved before they're born the temperament matchup and the work matchup is what depends on where they go and who they go to. But, um, yeah, it's definitely not a situation where you just call me and say, you need a puppy and I'm like, Oh, what do you want the puppy to do? And I just like shove a puppy at you and take your money. Um, it's definitely more in depth than that. But, um, when it comes down to it, if you're a, you know, there are a lot of preppers I've noticed who will go, you know, from city living or suburban living to rural living, and they have a dog of mysterious origin that they decide is now gonna guard their property. Not every dog can do that. Not every dog can cash that check when a bear comes up. Like not every dog's actually gonna run off a bear. Um much less win and get that bear to leave. <laughs> mm-hmm. They might die first, but you're gonna solve problems to deal with. So um, I believe in selecting the right animal for the job. Just like you wouldn't go chop down a tree with a sword. You'd want, you know, an actual saw and an ax. Um, You shouldn't throw your golden retriever at a bear and hope for the best. That's not fair to the animal. And it's not really fair to you either because you're going to lose your dog. So um, I do encourage people to consider, you know, um, there are purebred dogs for a reason there are types of dogs for a reason and just because it's more expensive to do it the right way the first time doesn't necessarily mean that's the wrong move um also look for people who can barter if you're really in the lifestyle you have something that a breeder will probably want um so there are ways to get you that dog that are not cash money uh let's just say uh, for at least most people who are like me um But yeah, no, it's not as simple as just like saying like you want a dog and go get the dog. If you're finding that it is that simple where you're going, I would consider that a red flag on the breeders part and be like, oh, they just want cash for puppy. That's they're not going to be invested in your future and your success at all.
1: But but, Okay. So you just breed the dog and then how do people find out about you and then how do they come get, get the dog from you and all that?
0: Um. Yeah, so I I breed my dogs. I announce my litters. I have an active wait list of people who have already applied for puppies, told me what they're looking for, and that they're willing to wait. And um, I contact them when I know I have something for them, or when I have a litter, just let them know to keep an eye out on their emails or their phone. And um, at 12 weeks, if that's the day that these puppies are going home, they can come to my property and pick up. I can deliver for gas money or I can, uh, look at livestock transport, both. Um, I mean, we can technically fly a puppy to you. I've got puppies in the Carolinas and I did not drive them there. They flew there. So, um, there are ways to move puppies across the country if that's what you really want. Um, I've, I've got puppies in at least 20 States and Canada. So, um, it's not, it's not really that complicated. Um, but yeah, no. The first, ep- I mean, I have, I maintain a website. I am listed on GoodDog.com because I health test my dogs. The last thing you want is a working dog that's 120 pounds whose hip goes out before they're five, and then you have a lame dog that you have to medicate and keep by the fire for the whole winter when they should have been outside working. They're miserable. You're miserable. It's bad times. So um, you definitely want to hedge your bet and go with someone who actually is breeding healthy dogs that also work not just one or the other all right.
1: so where do you advertise your dogs at or where, where do you what's your website
0: um yeah so uh my my website is apexanatolians.com you can see all my dogs there you how can do you spell them uh apex a-p-e-x anatolians X is an x-ray yep uh a-n-a T O L I A N S. Just the breed is Anatolian Shepherd. com. com. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and then people just go there and you advertise your dog, and I call you up and say, I want. I mean, obviously, I, I don't call you up and say, I want a dog does this, this, this. I read the ad or whatever, call and say, yeah. I want.
0: A, So the whole, the home site I just have as my, my, basically my frequently asked questions. It's long, everything you want to know about Anatolian Shepherd dogs is on that page, just at apexantolians.com. So if you can read through that and at the end, you're like, I still think this sounds like a good idea. Then you can, you're more than welcome to give me a phone call. Um, I'm more than happy to talk to people about these dogs. They have vastly improved my quality of life living out in the woods. (laughs) <laughs> okay so um, i'd
1: go to your website and read your spill for lack of a better word about i guess dogs that you sell or dogs that you breed and if i still like it i call you and say i want this dog because xyz we talk about it and then you bring it over and i pay whatever we agreed to or whatever the price that you said is yeah yeah
0: well you um after the phone call if you like like what you hear you you can fill out an application that's going to go through where you live what you actually want the dog to do um, if you've had one of these dogs before or if you've only ever had like pugs um, you know that, that kind of information that actually is applicable to getting a new dog um, and then I will just keep you apprised of when we have a litter which we're going to have one hopefully in December so they'll be going home in March which is really good timing okay spring spring go home puppies
1: (laughs) so let's talk about getting the dog because getting the dog according to this blog that i read by louise Lindenberg, i believe is how you pronounce her last name Mm -hmm. um it takes a good 12 weeks for the dog to get used to the other or the puppy anyway to get used to the other dogs according to what i have read doesn't it how does that go
0: So I like to go by the three month or the three day, three week, three month rule. It's a little faster with puppies, but basically it's going to take that puppy three days to realize that they're not going back to their mom and that you're now their person. It's going to take about three weeks for them to settle in with all your other existing animals and understand like, okay, this is where I go and find their place in that order. And it takes on average about three months for them to accept like, okay, this is my place. I need to protect it and like, you know, turn that on. With a puppy, they usually will um, fit in a little sooner. Of course, that does depend on your other animals. Um, If you have a herd queen goat who likes to beat the crap out of any dog she sees, keep the puppy away from that goat. (laughs) Um, If you have a kid who likes to pull tails or ears or just generally be inappropriate with dogs, maybe you just definitely keep an eye on that kid or keep it away from the puppy when it's fitting in at first um, and train your child also that's important. Um, And then as they, you'll know, you'll see it when they are comfortable at your property. And um, usually what happens when they get comfortable, they start getting naughty. (laughs) Um, So if they were like the perfect citizen for the last two months, and then now today they're out there chasing goat babies, they're comfortable now, and now the training starts for real because you have to redirect that bad behavior in another way that is productive. So, um, and that's something that like I can teach you. <laughs> but ways um, to
1: regress that bad behavior. I'm sorry. What are? How do you regress? Because it sounds like what you're telling me, you train the puppy for or breed, I should say, uh, for 12 weeks, two months, three months, whatever. And then they realize, oh, my mom's not here. In your case, you, Natalie, I can do what I want, I guess, are the behaviors. So how do you regress that? Uh, How do you regress that as the new owner?
0: Yeah. So um, basically chasing, pulling wool, uh, licking chickens and or killing chickens. These are what we call self-rewarding bad behaviors. Um, So when you're not there. And the puppy does something naughty that you don't want them doing. They're getting a reward. They're getting an intrinsic value, a positive feedback when they're chasing the goats and the goats are running from them. They, they see that as play activity and they're having a gay old time. That puppy is having the time of its life chasing your goats and your goats are like wondering what the heck is happening and where you are to protect them from this thing that's supposed to be protecting them, but is now chasing them like a predator would. Um, so you that is the human's job to a limit the opportunity for bad behaviors to even manifest um which includes things like tethering uh puppy pens um you know you can do a dangle stick you can there are things that you can utilize to limit that behavior option to a puppy and also supervision so you're not you're not throwing your kids out in a candy store And telling them like hey don't eat anything and then like leaving them for three hours like no one would do that so why are you taking a puppy who has a lot of energy now and is comfortable in its new surroundings and giving them things that will run when they chase you're not really setting that dog up to be successful if you just leave it out there and you're like well he knows what i want like nope he's a puppy so um, it takes supervision i recommend a long lead so that you have a reach out and touch them facility when they are doing something bad you just jerk the lead give a verbal correction and when they look at you they stop moving those are oh good come here and then you reinforce that behavior of looking away from the goats not chasing the goats or chewing on chickens or whatever it is that they're doing that you would prefer they not actually do it's,
1: um, it's hard to do that though because you, you probably would find it entertaining for the puppies and the goats to be running from each other and all those kinds of things uh, don't you
0: well no that's not entertaining to a stock owner at all uh that's stressful oh. on the animals and stressed animals I mean, don't maybe it's just things.
1: me i would just find it very entertaining
0: oh maybe the first time but like so so you have a herd of dairy goats and your, your does are being chased by the puppy. Your production is going to go down. Your really? quality of that milk is going to go down. Um, your, if they're pregnant, you can look at, be looking at miscarriages if it's happening regularly. Um, it'll oh. cost you money. It'll cost you quality of product. Um, so no, you don't, it's like, while it may look funny on YouTube, which don't go to YouTube for training advice. Um,
1: oh, come on. I so thought it, YouTube it had all the funny. answers.
0: Yeah, well, welcome to the internet. <laughs> uh, well, it may it may look amusing on the like on the outside um, when you're the one checking the numbers of all your stuff. It is not good or funny at all to have a, a you know a dog chasing. Um, even if you just have meat animals, their stressed meat does not taste as good as happy meat. It's scientific. interesting. The amino acids in there uh, will turn your meat into a worse product. So. You don't want your puppy who is, whose sole purpose in life and why you bought them was to protect from actual predators, you don't want him behaving like a predator towards your livestock, that is not his job. So, but you are the human and you are responsible for what you do and what you bring to your property. So as a responsible human person, it's your job to then train that puppy, not to haul off and shoot that puppy, not to lock that puppy up and never let it out again, or, um, you know, drop it off at a shelter. These are not adult responsible choices. They are made regularly by certain people, especially ones who were maybe less selective on where they got their dog from. And turns out the dog is half border collie. But, you know, when you're looking from a homesteading perspective, my hope is that the people listening to this podcast or this type of, you know, thing, not only do you care about your animals that are providing for you and your family, but you also care that you know, about good animal husbandry and it's not good animal husbandry to let your dogs, pet or otherwise chase your livestock. It's just not responsible. Um, they should have a a high quality of life.
1: So you can uh, have the consequences by having a stick dangling up them. What what does that do Mm -hmm. to the dog?
0: So, um, a dangle stick will come off their collar and it'll hang about elbow height, um, in front of their front feet. So basically every time they try to take off running, every time they reach for her with their front feet, they're getting swacked with a, like a, just a little piece of log. Um, and that's going to discourage them from moving suddenly around the stock. Um, Oh, so do
1: you tie that to the dog then
0: you can, some people do, okay. I've never actually used one of those, but they can be effective, especially if you just have a really energetic puppy.
1: What method um, have you used?
0: Um, I mostly just supervise and I use my mom voice Your voice my mom voice, they know they're in trouble when I have to be like, hurry. Um, yeah. So they, they're actually very responsive to that. Um, another thing about these dogs is they're actually pretty stubborn and they, they have been bred to think for themselves. So they are not always the most receptive to correction of their behaviors. Um, you have to actively build a bond Mm -hmm. With your livestock guardian dog. Um, You don't have to have a dog live in your house to bond with them. You just do have to spend time with them. So that means for me, I'm out there multiple times a day. Um, Even if you work a town job or a real job and you don't work from home like I do, you can still spend time with your dogs when you're out there milking or you're out there feeding or you're um, checking fence or you're, you know, doing anything with your livestock, have the dog with you take Mm -hmm. them around, put them on a long leash. You can be fixing fence and watching your puppy out of the corner of your eye and the puppy takes off towards a, you know, a lamb or anything else. You just jerk that leash and you say, Hey, knock it off. And once they knock it off, say, "Good dog. You don't just stay mad at them. You don't leave them hanging. Once they stop what they're doing and they do something acceptable, you're like, yep, that's what I want. And once they get enough, you know, exposure of, yep, that's what I want. They know what you want.
1: (laughs) So let's Um, suppose, Oh, go ahead
0: oh no you're you're you're
1: totally fine Well, suppose that uh you're there uh you natalie are there then you have to go shopping for three hours because you live I, I i don't know exactly where in montana you're at but i know you're by bozeman aren't you
0: uh no missoula
1: oh okay well okay so let's say you have to go to costco in missoula i don't know if there is one over there but
0: there is there yeah. is there is.
1: Okay. So you have to go to Costco and stock up for the week or the month. You come back and you find out that your new puppy and the goats are chasing each other and they've been doing this the whole time that you've been gone. Then what do you do? Cause you weren't there when this initiated.
0: Yeah. So, um, well, first I, if I only have one puppy out there and I don't have any adults who are going to be keeping the puppy on the straight and narrow, I'm not leaving the property with the puppy out with the goats. Mm-hmm. So I recommend a puppy pen, which is, um, you know, you can do a chain link kennel, although I don't recommend chain link for farm use because it stretches and pigs and cattle and everything else on the planet can get through it. Um, but it works in a pinch. Um, but, you know, uh, cattle panels, or I really like the two by four grid no climb panels that are um, like five and a half feet tall and, 18 feet long, I think. Um, mm-hmm. they're very breakout proof. Uh, if you just set those up, you get the puppy inside the stock area, usually about where they feed, where you feed them. Um, and just set the puppy pen there. They can nose touch, they can sniff, they can interact with each other safely through that two by four no-climb grid of um the kennel or the puppy pen. But what that puppy cannot do is it cannot chase and what your herd queen cannot do is she cannot pound the puppy into the ground or stomp him or break his leg or break his spirit while you're in town um so if, if they're not supervised actively and you have any inkling that there would be problems which you should because puppies do strange things and so do livestock um they should be separated safely and contained when they're not you know actively supervised um that prevents the puppy from engaging in self-rewarding bad behavior building you know that up in their system where like oh well once mom goes in the house I can do whatever I want and it's fun and I like it they'll never know that that's fun and they like it if they never have the opportunity to actually do it without getting immediately corrected and redirected so um yeah I just wouldn't do that basically
1: okay so here's an idea and tell me what you think Let's say the puppy's misbehaving, chasing the goats and the other, because I assume that you're, you know, you're not, you, you have a bunch of dogs out there. So if you leave to go to Missoula, um, you're probably not too worried about your livestock because you've got dogs guarding it, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's suppose you're back and you let your puppy out and it's misbehaving. What do you think of the idea of an electric dog collar shocking it? And this is not being mean to the animal. This is teaching it. So don't get the wrong idea, folks. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you come out right after you shock the dog and tell it to knock it off. Is that tactic work?
0: It can, but that is actually up to the operator. So um, e-callers have a really bad rap of being, you know, cruel. Is and that because of the,
1: and, uh, the animal rights activists giving it a bad rap?
0: Well, I just, I actually think it's an issue of people not being properly trained with the equipment. I mean, e-callers, um, shock collars, beeping, vibrating and actual static shock. Um, those are tools. They're not inherently good or bad. What turns them good or bad is the training on the person holding the button. So the issue with those callers, especially the cheap ones that you get off of maybe Amazon or eBay, is that they are not transmitting immediately. When you push that button, that signal has to move. Really? So say that puppy is doing something bad, you hit the button to issue a correction. By the time the signal gets there, two and a half seconds later, depending on the range and strength of your system which again depends entirely on your, what you paid for it. Usually get what you pay for. By the time that signal gets that puppy, if the puppy has already stopped the bad behavior, you are correcting the stop, not the bad behavior. And this is how dogs get confused. This is how dogs get frustrated. And a frustrated, confused dog is not a happy dog. So It's a big responsibility on the human to test their equipment, to understand what a seven shock is. Like I, I use all my equipment on myself before I put it on my dogs, because I want to understand what it's actually going to do. Um, and you need to check your range. And that's not saying like, you have to shock your kid down there, but you, there are indicators where you can hook up like a little indicator light to the collar and it'll tell you, and you can time how far how long it takes time wise to move that signal from the beep the button to the actual collar for a 100 200 300 yard range and it is not going to be the same collar to collar and it's not going to be the same operator to operator cuz when you issue a correction when i issue a correction is inherently going to be there's going to be variation there okay so
1: that leads me to a question then i knew somebody that had electronic an electric dog collar back in 1996, and he showed it to me. He actually shocked it, uh, shocked me with it, because I wanted him to do it to see what it felt like, and uh, it was kind of amusing, actually. <laughs> but... Uh, you there? Yep.
0: Yeah, so- okay,
1: my computer's acting weird. Okay. Um, yeah, so anyway, it was kind of amusing, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think it's because his backyard was just, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 feet away from his house or where he was maybe even closer than that. The way he described it was an instant shock. Is that because he probably was about 20 feet away from the dog or hundred feet away or something. So it was more of an instant shock. So he he'd say he would shock the dog and go out and say no and correct the behavior. Yeah.
0: So, and again, that's, you know, that's a range issue, you're not seeing that happen at long range unless you are paying a few hundred dollars for that setup. So okay. um, many educators are good. Sport dog is usually pretty good. Um, but when you get into the, the cheap, the knockoff <laughs> uh, you're, you're looking at a significant delay. Um, and that delay can be your undoing. So yes, you can use them um, on You know, some trainers, they call it the hand of God when you're Mm -hmm. using an e-caller. The purpose of that is not to associate the correction with you and your voice. That is not what you do. You are not going to issue a correction, whether it's a beep, a vibrate, or a shock. You're not going to issue that to that dog and then get up off your ass, run out the door, and go yell at that dog to stop and knock it off. That's Mm. what the beep, the vibrate, or the shock was for. And it's not associated with you it's associated with the behavior directly as if God himself was reaching down and touching that dog. We like knock it off. And you can elicit the same stop response with the beep on the collar as you can with the vibrate function on the collar as you can with the shock on the collar.
1: Okay. Cause this person said it's a that
0: correlation and training issue. It is not, it's an operator issue basically on how you use those tools and Anybody who's out there shocking the crap out of their dog to try to get it to stop. If if one didn't work, 10 isn't going to work. So you have to be very good at what you're doing with that dog in order for that to be an applicable and acceptable tool.
1: Okay. Most people,
0: it's
1: not. Because this uh, person said every time he would shock his dog, he'd go out and say no. I don't know if he would yell at him, but he'd go out and say no because otherwise the dog would be confused as to where that shock came from.
0: Well, it was the nineties. So they also believe in alpha theory back then. Oh, so okay. <laughs> so you're, you're uh, saying if
1: I shocked my dog with a dog collar, uh, obviously I'd have to know when to do it or whatever. I don't necessarily have to go outside and tell it. No.
0: No, you don't. You okay. have to prime the collar and the tool, which involves you, but after you've primed it and they understand what a shock means and that it actually correlates to no or stop or don't or whatever.
1: I have to do what? To, I have to do what to the collar after I shock it?
0: Yeah, hmm. no, you have to prime it. So you have to when you first put that collar on the dog, the first time you shock them, they're going to be confused, they're going to lose orientation and they're not going to know what's happening. That is your job as the trainer, the owner, the handler, whatever you want to call yourself, as the person with the button, it is your job to correlate that response on the collar to what you actually want the dog to understand it means so when i first put the
1: collar on the dog and shock it i have to go out and explain to the dog what that meant or there's no going
0: out when you first put one there is no going out when you are first training a dog on an e-collar you are right next to him and you are training him what the e-collar means and what the vibrate means if it's different than what the beep means that's your job. Okay. So once I shock the dog
1: with the collar, then I just say no real loud or whatever. And the dog automatically knows that that behavior, or when I zap the dog with not a a violent shock, just a jolt, the dog means no to the dog. It means stop it.
0: Yeah. Well, like it's whatever you make it, but that's, I mean, that's a, you need to actively work with a professional trainer on e-collar work. This isn't something you order off of Amazon and throw on your LGD and then just like go to town on it. Uh, you're gonna have a problem on your hands because with LGDs, as well as other breeds, when you shock them, there is a real possibility you can be queuing them up instead of down. Okay. So if they're going after your goats and you shock them, they can associate that with the goat attacking them, not with a correction. And then you have a bloodbath on your hands. There are so many people who misuse and abuse training tools on these dogs and then expect to just like be like, oh, well, that's the dog's fault. Like, no, sir, that was all you. (laughs) You failed. You failed the dog, it killed your goat. And now you're gonna like, you know, cull your dog when really maybe you should look in the mirror. Um, this is not something that I generally recommend because most people can't handle an e-collar properly. And um, if you're going to use an e collar you need to hire a real life trainer to come to your property and show you how to use it and hopefully sell you a unit that is actually decent because you're not going to find one on your own if this is your first okay. week or you haven't touched one since the 90s. It's it's not, it is nowhere near as straightforward as people make it seem.
1: Okay. So it sounds like people in the nineties had a different thinking of these electronic, these electric dog collars than 2021.
0: Oh yeah. It was 30 years ago. So
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's go on now. I think we're, did did you want to talk about anything else about retraining the dog once it's at its owners and not having it chase the goats or whatever is entertaining as that might sound? Obviously it's not a good idea. Anything else you want to, bring up before i go to another topic
0: i mean really it's it's about selecting the right dog for you and and you as a person looking at videos and or pictures on the internet or getting like you know pictures sent to you by a breeder you're not the person to pick that dog you don't know the litter you don't know the puppy you don't know the temperament traits that the breeder has selected for for the last three generations so you don't really actually know what's going on what you want to look for if you're looking for a working dog whether it be an lgd or any other type of working animal, you want to find someone you can trust to select that puppy, or that colt, or that you know cow, or whatever it is, for you and your needs. Um, don't put that pressure on yourself because when you fail, you have no one to blame but yourself. Not that you should blame your breeder, but you really should find someone who is willing to you know back that puppy up for the rest of its life and answer your phone call when you call them. Yeah. Um. You know that that's actually the most important part of all of this is being selective of where you spend your hard earned cash and or trade ammo and or canned goods or whatever else you're doing to get this puppy make sure you're getting it from a good person who knows what they're doing because you can get a 50 dollars craigslist puppy and you can buy 15 of them before you get a decent one and none of those people will take your phone call they won't even give you their number you know so um it's a, it's a quality over quantity issue. If you want a good dog, you want to do it once you don't want to waste your time and energy because you know no. that your time and energy is valuable. Um, you know, in, invest the research and the actual, you know, means to get an appropriate dog for your situation. So let's sure. talk
1: about uh, actually, this is a great segue into my next topic. Let's talk about breeding or let's talk about the kind of breeds of dogs that are great up here in Montana
0: sure for just any dogs or for the guardian dog work yes yes okay um so any double coated breed is good um explain to
1: those that don't know uh what a double coated breed is what is that exactly
0: sure they're the ones that annoy you by blowing coat once or twice a year um they grow a fluffy undercoat Um, they have like longer guard hairs, but then they have a fluffy undercoat that comes in, in the winter and then they blow it in the spring and they usually blow it again in the fall as they put on heavier. When you say they blow it, what does that mean? That means they shed a lot. Okay. Yeah. So when they blow coat, they shed. So you've got all this fuzzy white or light cream hair just popping up everywhere. And you're like, what the heck you're a gray or a black or a brown dog. Where did all this white hair come from? It's all over my work pants. Um, that's those dogs but what they do do is they adapt very well to cold weather environments like Montana. And they also handle the summers, you know, that get up to hundred degrees here very well. Mm Um, you know, the exception is if you keep that dog in your house with you next to the wood stove all winter, they're not going to be putting on the same amount of undercoat that my dogs living outside dealing with weather, like the predators do is going to put on. Um, but you know there i know people here with boxers which are a single coated breed which is just that slick single layer of you know guard hair
1: in the winter beautiful
0: dogs, beautiful dogs no body fat no hair for winter people buy them clothes here what? Um,
1: wow i don't want do a dog work? that I have to
0: buy clothes for
1: <laughs> do they work very good
0: no they're not guardian dogs they're just pets but oh. yeah i mean if you keep them in your house it's fine but oh You know, uh, guardian dog breeds specifically, you're looking at uh, Great Pyrenees is the most common. They're the big white fluffy ones that you see in movies and fields around everywhere. Um, Anatolian Shepherds, what I have, they're typically tan with a black mask. They have shorter hair than a Great Pyrenees, but um, they do have a functional double coat. So they're thicker than like, say a boxer. Um, You can also find other BWDs or big white dogs. There's a lot of all-white livestock guardian dog breeds. You're looking at uh, Maremmas, which are from Italy. Uh, Kuvas, which are kind of more of a wavy than a fluffy Great Pyrenees look. Uh, Commodores, which are corded, which means they don't shed, and they will—they kind of look like poodles. If you gro- you can groom them like a poodle, but their temperament is very, very different than a poodle. They are actually one of the more uh, Reactive livestock guardian dog breeds, regardless of their dashing, cute looks when they're groomed appropriately. And uh, they're more human aggressive than the average uh, livestock guardian dog breed. So don't let the looks deceive you. Um, you can have more wild type looking dogs, uh, my Sharplana knots, which is a fun word to say. And the reason we call them Shars. Uh, they are more wolfy looking. I do paint them up with orange paint in hunting season like this time of year, because I don't want them being shot by helpful hunters. Oh, good idea. Um, because they do look wolfy. Like no one is looking for ears in their scope. So while my dogs do have folded ears, no one's checking ears before they shoot a wolf out of my pasture. So I paint them with orange spray paint. That's a uh, dog safe. So um that works really well. Or I run streamers off their collars like the the orange nylon tape stuff. I just like run it off their collars and just tie long strands to it so they look like they're going to a parade, but it's obvious that they're not a wolf at that point. <laughs> okay. Um and then um I mean there's there's about 30, there's just over 30 different breeds of livestock guardian dogs from mainly Europe and Asia, but there are other ones. Um you know, that have popped up, some people in America want to reinvent the wheel. And while I bred, you know, purpose crosses of LGDs for years, I never like branded them into their own breed because they're not their own breed. Um, so if you see something like a, a Colorado mountain dog, um, they claim to be LGDs, but they actually have bred in non livestock Guardian dog breeds like uh, Newfoundland and other things that are perfectly fine dogs but really are more velcro and want to be with their people they don't really want to live outside 24 7 so that's a conflict of interest when you have a dog that you're hoping to leave outdoors with livestock all winter long um you know there are i'm sure other things um that people are are doing out there but just do your research there's there's lots of cool breeds out there and if you find one that you like but you can't find a good breeder or any available with health testing that kind of thing like look for a cousin breed or look for another breed that you like the look of at the end of the day the temperament match to you and your temperament is key and the willingness to work the job that you want them to work whether that is watching your kids whenever they go outside or only caring about goats for the rest of their life um you know, these things that you, you want, that's what you want to focus on is finding a dog that matches that and finding a breeder that can supply that dog to you and looks, color are gravy on top. They're not, they're not the main thing you should be super concerned with. Um, Okay.
1: Um, I want to cover two topics and then uh, I know we're going along, but I hope you know. (laughs) Um, All right. So, Going back to once you get your dog, I'm just going to use the word training because you know you're training your dog to get along with the puppies. You're regressing the bad behavior. Never mind the fact that you may have taught the dog for two months. Let's go. Let's just say it's going to me. I have to regress the bad behavior. One of the things that uh, this was mentioned in Lucy Lindenberg's Lienberg, blog is about the dogs getting along with other dogs it'll start uh, wagging its tail being very playful snipping its butt you know the older dog's butt Uh, that's probably just a dog's way of communication i guess and then uh, i want to ask if the puppy is not getting along with the dogs i don't know how i guess it takes about eight to twelve weeks according to this blog to see if the dogs are really getting along. I guess one of the things that it suggests is the fact that you can feed the puppy with the adult dog's sense. Cause I guess when you feed an adult dog that lives with you, you can feed it and then the dog will smell that sense. And have you ever done that? And has it actually worked?
0: Um, I don't have assigned bowls to my different dogs, but uh, so I I guess there's like some potential for bowl swapping that smells like the puppy or smells like the other dogs, just like stainless steel food bowls. Uh, It's not something that I do on purpose. Basically, my expectation of my adult dogs is that if someone is coming here as a puppy, they have essentially a puppy, what we like to call a puppy card. Um, And that is basically that they're, they have a little more leeway, um, rather than like introducing an adult dog. And I have introduced adult dogs to my pack as well. That is more, um, complicated than adding a puppy. When you add a puppy to an existing pack of dogs, uh, the adults that are in power positions in the pack should not be trying to beat up on the puppy. That's, not a thing that should happen. I I would consider that a temperament issue in my dogs. If my dogs were like, ooh, new meat, fresh meat, like you know, it's like a prison or something like that. Um, that's not something that I would actually tolerate here. Uh, my dogs are nice to puppies. As my puppies age out of having a puppy card, yes, they will uh, get corrected. They'll get rolled over by bigger dogs. The bigger dogs teach them pretty quickly. Um, and usually it is within that like eight to 12 weeks after the puppy gets here, that the puppy ages out of that puppy card. And then you're going to see some more vocal corrections. You're going to see some reactions from the puppy who is like, you were so nice to me yesterday and now you're being mean and it's not fair. Um, so you will have a little bit of toss up, but it really shouldn't be violent. It shouldn't draw blood. It shouldn't damage anyone. It can, it can shock them a little bit, the puppy, especially when they're like, I was fine yesterday and today you're being really, really rude. Um, but no, I've never had that. What I do see with these dogs, really any dog, is when you have sexual maturity coming into the play around six months to 12 months of age, depending on your breed and or the individual dog, that is when the rubber meets the road as far as personality conflict can go. So um, if I have two females coming into heat at the same time, they've been really good with each other, but they also would, I, in an ideal world, they'd like to, uh, like you know, occupy the same level in the pack. Um, they they both want to be the boss, or they both want to be number two under the like leader male. Um, shit's going to go down (laughs) Mm -hmm. that is that is when the the trouble actually starts is when uh heat cycles start if you have multiple intact males you're going to see fireworks when the males are trying to compete with one another for breeding right um if you have working dogs that are supposed to be outside you're going to draw male canine predators from a five mile radius when you have females in heat that you're just letting run outdoors so um you're going to create a lot of problems for yourself by having that situation go on. I don't find that puppy adding or, um, litter rearing. I also have like, you know, a lot of, you know, well, at least one litter a year of, you know, 10 puppies or so born here. So all my adults are really used to having puppies around. Um, Maybe the average dog would not be as nice to a puppy, but I wouldn't keep a dog around that wanted to go bully a puppy. That's yeah, awesome. I was going to
1: ask, uh, how do you know if the puppy is not a fit for your adult dogs and how long should you keep it around? And also sure. it, the blog stress body language. How would I as a blind person know if they're getting along or not? Because I cannot see their body language. Is this why I'd have to have sighted assistance or what?
0: Yeah, if you're gonna run dogs that could over easily very easily overpower you with their just their muscle mass. Um, even if you're like like if you're 200 pounds even in good shape, and you have a 150 pound dog, they're still stronger than you. Wow, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of humans don't actually appreciate that. Like their muscles are highly more functional than ours are. So just because they're smaller than you by weight does not mean that you have the upper hand necessarily. Um. I I would not recommend learning more than one without being able to see what's going on. Uh, Body Mm -hmm. language is huge. It's how they primarily communicate. Uh, Vocalizations for dogs are a a secondary option. They are not their primary default, uh, no matter what Great Pyrenees owners tell you. So um, everything from from their posture to um, like presenting broadside to head on to turning Uh, even like dipping of a, of an ear down, like there's intricate movements that you want to be able to see. And if you can't see like you, uh, you definitely want another experienced dog person with you yeah. because God forbid you get in the middle of something that you can't get out of. That would be awful.
1: Oh yeah.
0: Um, I would not wish that on you, (laughs) you know, So, um, like, that's part of like setting yourself up for success, not failure is just having, having support to know like when it's time to pull that dog back. But, um, so I, I think the reason that Louise talks a lot about, um, you know, pack building and personality and, and body language and, and, you know, functional relationships within the pack is that she, a, she has a bunch of dogs. That run together and some don't want to run together and that's okay too um we've all worked with a co-worker at some point in our lives that we're like if i never see them again it'll be too soon uh-huh. so dogs can also have that feeling for one another that is not uniquely human and um when you know that the dogs cannot run together that's when you get to decide if you're going to run a second group of dogs where it's like, you know, group one likes to run together and group two likes to run together, but the leader of group one and group two should never meet because then it's going to be a bloodbath. That is more common on the, the harder temperament dogs and hard doesn't mean that they're bad or hard to train. What it means is compared to a soft temperament dog. Um, for example, in theme, my Anatolian Pyrenees cross dog that I have outside if I were to roll my window up and say, "Infi, come here. She would like, her body language, she would be like down and tail tucked and like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I'm so sorry. I don't know what I did, but I'll never do it again. I'm so sorry. Whereas if I yell at Celine in the exact same tone and manner, she'll come prancing up like, yeah, what? And that's just because her, she is more resilient to tone and, you know, anger. <laughs> Whether I'm actually angry or not, if I'm frustrated with a cow that just broke through a fence and I'm yelling at the dog, I'm going to get very different reactions from a char, like what Louise runs, than I am from a Pyrenees cross dog that is very soft. Yeah. Um, so, so like that just goes to temperament. If I'm not really a big yeller, so I can run a softer dog and not make their life miserable my husband is a harder temperament human and likes to hear himself yell on occasion. So he doesn't, I told him, he just doesn't get to correct infi That's just a rule because it's not fair because he'll overshoot it every single time with her. And she'll feel like the world is ending and he won't understand why she feels that way. So, <laughs> uh, whereas he can yell at any of the shars and they will just be like, yeah. And you know, it, it's a di- very different, temperament. Um, I'm sure people with human children have run into this kind of difference o- along oh, yeah. among their own children.
1: Oh yeah. Uh... So if you have like a
0: sibling that was like really gentle, soft spoken, and didn't, didn't want to be uh, any trouble and just kind of kept to himself in the corner. And then you're the one who's like yelling, screaming through the house and carrying on all the time, driving the person crazy. Um you you couldn't have the same parent do the same type of correction or punishment or even you know encouragement. To both of you, (laughs) like you, you need to be met where you are and dogs are the same way. So, um, Louise runs a breed of dog, the Shars that are generally a mid hard to hard temperament dog, which means that they do something annoying or, you know, just they're in the wrong pasture and she yells at them and like Infi, my little Anatolian Pyrenees could think that Louise is about to murder her (laughs) for being in the wrong area. Whereas the Shars will literally like turn around, make eye contact so that you know they heard you and just do it more. They're like, oh yeah, like it's like on The Office when Michael Scott's like, you know what? I'm gonna date her even harder to, <laughs> to dating Pam's mom. And it, it's like, it's I know I'm wrong but I'm gonna be wrong even harder now because I know you, you wanna you know make an issue of it. It's like in spite of you and your correction, I'm gonna go do it because I'm stubborn. Now, that's not to say that you tolerate that with actual bad behavior, but you kind of have to draw a line in the sand of what hill you want to die on with the harder temperament dogs because you're not going to win the battle of wills with them. So you have to pull your I'm the boss of you card selectively, (laughs) not all the time for every little nitpicky thing, Um, whereas the softer dogs, if you're like, hey, come around. They will literally do exactly what you said the first time. And they're like, oh, whatever I was planning on doing wasn't as important. Um, it, it also works on softer dogs to call them off of stuff. Like you can call a softer dog off of a bear, usually. And if they're running a bear through your lot and you're like, do not jump that fence and go after that bear. Like, come on back. Like, good girl, bring it back. They'll actually turn around. Whereas a char or a tougher breed is very likely to go take that fence and run that bear for another two miles and then just come back home when they're done but they want to go do their job that doesn't make happy neighbors especially when you have like conservationist neighbors with game cams oh, yeah. so um you know just things like that the personality of the dog and the personality of you and your family members is really important and uh yeah and you have no idea how to match that based on cute puppy pictures on the internet. <laughs> so
1: are there times then I, I suppose maybe even Louise or maybe you got rid of a dog because you figured out no matter what you did, you couldn't get along with that dog. If that dog couldn't get along with you or other dogs, has that ever happened to you?
0: Absolutely. Um, and how do
1: you know that it's time to give up your dog, your new puppy then?
0: Sure. I kept a puppy for, I think I had him about three months. So he's about six months old when I came to the distinct conclusion that he was, he was too soft um, to function and be happy around my other dogs. Um, he was basically living in a constant state of fear <laughs> of the other dogs. If I raised my voice at one of the other dogs, he took it as a personal affront and just couldn't handle it. Um, and it was it would not have been fair for me to just keep him here because I bought you and I'm committed to you and I'm your forever home. So get over it. Um, which is like, you know, that's more of an animal rightsy thing. If you have an animal, whether it be a goat or a pig or a pigeon or a puppy who is flat out miserable at your house. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad person or you're a bad dog or pig or pigeon owner. But if, if that animal is just not thriving and you know they would be much happier somewhere else, I think part of good animal husbandry is letting them go somewhere else. Um, I don't think there are any bonus points to be won by being stubborn and keep holding on to an animal that really should not be with you. Um, so yeah, I, I have sold uh, two dogs that did not fit here. And it, it came down to, you know, Am I going to change? I can adjust to a dog. What I can't do is change five other dogs to adjust to the new dog. <laughs> like I, yeah. I'm, I'm a decent trainer. I am not that good. So coming at it from a realistic perspective and knowing this dog is going to be the odd man out for the rest of his life here, and he is not going to enjoy a minute of it. That's when I look for someone else yeah. to Um, who is willing and or just set up better for that dog than I am and um, it's happened twice for me I don't know how if it's happened for Louise or if she just uh, runs them separate from the dogs they don't get along with Um, she has I mean she's got I think she's got sections plural of land just square mileage like up there so um, she definitely has the the means to make sure that the dogs that are maybe picking on or just, you know, harassing into the ground, the one dog don't ever see that dog again. She can do that. I on 10, 10 and a half acres. I can't do that. Like, I, I can't guarantee that one of my kids is not going to leave a gate open, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's not something I'm comfortable guaranteeing because I don't think I could. So um, yeah, I'll definitely rehome a dog or a goat or anything that's not thriving here. Um, Any idea
1: why that puppy lived in fear?
0: Oh, yeah. So he just, he was too soft, um, which means, you know, he he went to a home. He went to Colorado, actually, after here. And he did great. He, were, he lived with a great Pyrenees female. Uh, they worked in concert together. Great. He was still able to chase down predators. He was still fully functional as a working LGD. The issue was that he... Um, basically his, his communication style and the other dogs here, communication style of like, you know, Oh, let's, let's like, they play rough. They, they hang rough. They correct each other really rough. They're not hurting each other physically, but mentally he was basically being run into the ground. Um, and just like, you know, in a constant state of terror of like when the next shoe was going to drop with the other dogs and that's that's not a nice thing um,
1: yeah.
0: that's like taking like a, a labrador that just wants to be a couch potato and like live with you forever on the couch and then you know matching him up with a schutzen trained former canine dog who really just wants to run ragged and just letting the the german shepherd run that labrador or the french bulldog or whatever pet dog you have into the ground because they are pushy enough to get their way and do what they want. Uh, it's just, it's not a good match. And, and it happens even within breeds <laughs> or types. Yeah. Um, so it's just, you know, I think the human job there is to be conscientious of what's going on with our animals and making sure that it's a good fit. And if it's not a good fit, figuring out either how to manage that appropriately to keep them here or find them a better match elsewhere so that they're, you know, living their best life <laughs> regardless of location. Cause it's an ego thing. I think a lot of people have, they're like, well, I bought that puppy. I brought it here. It's my responsibility until it dies at 15, hopefully. Um, you know, cause then you're making it work. Whereas really what you're doing is you're forcing that dog to make it work <laughs> cause yeah. you're not going to be there 24 seven. So, um, it's like a shift of ego, feeding and i don't think that that's the dog's job to feed our ego
1: (laughs) thank you for listening to part one of this episode of the canning plus seven podcast with natalie thurman don't forget to check out part two of this episode of the canning plus seven podcast with natalie thurman Thank you for listening to part one of this episode of the Canning Plus 7 podcast with Natalie Thurman. Don't forget to check out part two of this episode of the Canning Plus 7 podcast with Natalie Thurman.